Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We need to do more pirate content. I think that's where, where I've come here. Arr. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, a a great piece that Jane wrote about the sort of state of the Republican Party, um, some relevant parallel thoughts about the state of the Democratic Party. I did want to toot my own horn, though, at the top, say there is an excerpt of One Billion Americans available now at New York Magazine. Check it out. It's got sort of it's an adaptation of the the introduction of the book, really. Um, read it. If you find it delightful, uh, you should pre-order my book if you tweet about it. Uh, if you tweet your proof of purchase, rather, I will enter you into a lottery to win the weeds white paper. Now, some people have been writing to me. They've been saying, Matt, Matt, we don't care what you think. We want uh, Jane and Dara's books. But the best way you can get them to write a book is to buy my book, frankly. Uh, Because if my book is a huge success, then everybody's going to say, oh, wait, The Weeds. The Weeds sells books. Weeds listeners love to buy books. We've got to throw money at Dara and Jane. So help them out by helping me out and help yourself out with with the delightful book. Um, So anyway, uh, let's... Let's be real. Um, so, Jane, you wrote about, I, I guess it was the question of, like, did Donald Trump transform the Republican Party or did the Republican Party transform Donald Trump? Yeah. So I wrote about this uh, during and after the Republican National Convention, which um, was an event that I argued was essentially about Donald Trump and his own ambitions. And I found it particularly interesting because there was a minor um some mashugana about the fact that the Republican Party decided to go with the same platform it had in 2016, which is largely about how bad Obama is, and to keep that for 2020 and to essentially say that the Republican Party is very happy with everything Trump has done and they stand with Trump. And I argued in a sense that that is in part because the Republican Party has effectively made Donald Trump into more of a Republican than the Repu- than Donald Trump has ever made the Republican Party more like Donald Trump. I do not mean that in terms of general sensibility. I think that the Republican Party's tendency towards, well, if QAnon's a conspiracy theory, so is the quote-unquote Russia hoax and talking about triggering the libs a lot, I think that is pure Trumpism. But I think that that is Trumpism in means, not necessarily in deed. And I also think that it's worth noting here that this implies in some ways that my argument from 2017 that Trumpism isn't real was in some ways incorrect, which I don't necessarily think. So I want to be clear here that the interpretation I had is if you went into 2016 believing that Donald Trump was an iconoclastic candidate who would who won in part because he was not a conservative and that that was actually one of his big selling points, who won because he said things conservatives, quote unquote, wouldn't say, Um, you know, when Mitt Romney went to CPAC and talked about how he was severely conservative in 2012, Donald Trump went in and was like the Iraq war was bad and George W. Bush was bad and healthcare should be for everyone. Now, 
he was just saying stuff. He was saying stuff that everyone outside of people within like the upper echelons of Republican politics knew was true, which is that saying that stuff is popular. The Iraq war was unpopular. Healthcare is popular. Now, when you get down into like the actual nuts and bolts of how that all works, that's when things get complicated. And that's where politicians on both sides have benefited from the fact that people hold heterodox beliefs all at the same time. But if you went into 2016 thinking Trump is this heterodox, iconoclastic candidate who thinks outside the box and is more so interested in doing things. I think that one of the things about um, conservatism that I think is interesting is that there's always been this argument among conservatives about what conservatism is, because it's way easier to agree on what conservatism is not. Conservatism is inherently a reactionary movement. And reactionary has an inherently negative connotation. But what I mean is a movement in reaction to something. It is standing athwart something, to quote William F. Buckley, yelling stop. It is saying, you know, you want to do something, progressives, as in they want to progress, and we want to stop you from doing the something. We think that whatever it is right now, it was probably better before, and it will be probably worse if you do something about it. And so Trump comes in with the recognition that everyone kind of had, but no one really talked about, is that there is a market opportunity in populism, but also there is a market opportunity in saying that the government should do stuff. When Trump talked about Infrastructure Week and remember like when Infrastructure Week was not just a stupid joke, when he talked about spending more money on healthcare, again, he was just saying things, but all the things he said actually mirrored what people wanted. And that's why you got this kind of the J.D. Vancification of early Trumpism, which is that he is responding to something that is actually existing, but that he actually believes in in some way. I don't think that's necessarily true. But recent polling uh, from the Republican National Committee shows that uh, this is from the Washington Examiner. We can drop it in show notes. It shows that Trump basically has started losing some of the 8.2 million estimated Obama to Trump voters because he started talking a lot about tax cuts and Rust Belt voters, and I'll quote here, favor stronger social safety nets and hawkishness on trade rather than typical GOP orthodoxies such as lower lower tax rates and an easier regulatory environment for businesses. That is not to say that these voters oppose these things, but the rhetorical obsession from GOP donors, members of the party, do little to excite one-time Trump voters. Now, we could get into what all of that actually means, like a stronger social safety net for whom and hawkishness on what kind of trade. But I do think that what Trumpism was purported to be by the people who projected onto Trump all of their hopes and dreams about a populist nationalist revolution in many respects did not actually happen. I think that um, uh, obviously there are exceptions on trade wars and on immigration. But as you listen to the Trump campaign right now, and there's been a lot of talk among kind of populist conservatives, uh, Cigar and Jetty and a couple of other people who have talked a lot about how in 2016, Trump was talking a lot about like forgotten workers. And in 2020, he's talking about, quote unquote, suburban housewives and the quote unquote, beautiful boaters. And so I think that my argument is that in some part, why the Republican Party is absolutely fine with what Trump does and says is not just because they recognize that Trump is far more popular than they are, which is true, but also because outside of his occasional, we should go to war with like when there's some foreign policy hawkishness that Republicans don't like, or the opposite foreign policy dovishness that Republicans don't like. That's when Lindsey Graham gets up on his Lindsey Graham high horse and is like, I don't like all that. But I think that there's a sense that the two have actually moved far closer together. And Trump has moved as close to the Republican Party as the Republican Party has moved to Trump. I thought we had a good example of this kind of dynamic uh, just yesterday when New York Times did this report and it says the EPA is easing restrictions on lead, mercury and other toxic discharges from coal plants into waterways. Um, And so that directly contradicts something that like Trump 
promise during the campaign, which was like he very clearly said that he was for clean air and clean water and that he was going to protect clean air and clean water and that that's like really important to him, uh, according to him. Right. And it hasn't happened. And, you know, that's that's one kind of thing. Uh, But the other thing is that nobody noticed this story about the EPA changing rules to dump more toxins into waterways. And if you imagine a kind of a hypothetical, we'll call it a Mitt Romney administration, you know, a professional, high-toned GOP administration that's like not doing embarrassing interviews with Laura Ingraham, that's not tweeting incendiary stuff, that's in many ways like more popular than Trump would be because he's seen as running a tight ship, competent businessman, dealmaker. But if the Romney administration dropped the news that they were planning to greatly increase the amount of toxins in people's water, that would have been a big story. You know, like Democrats would have freaked out. There would have been segments on television news about this. We would have had, you know, pro Romney talking heads going up there being like, actually, the American people really want toxins in their drinking water. And it's possible that the Romney administration would have just not done it. Right. That like when George W. Bush was president, there was some rollback of environmental regulations, but actually not that much, because when even though he he wasn't a zealous enforcer of the environmental rules that are on the books. But when the proposition gets to your desk, that's like, hey, Mr. President, should we dump more toxic heavy metals into the drinking waters? Somebody around the table is like, I don't love the politics of that. Right. And Trump creates such a dust cloud of stuff. There's just always so much going on and like always like a new leak that's like, oh, three years ago, he said, can I ask the Navy to make me a dictator? And then the next day he's saying black clad ninjas on an airplane are controlling Joe Biden. It's like you create a real opportunity for every single person in the with a political appointment in the executive branch to just kind of like go buck wild. Right. It's like there's no effective political constraint on any particular area of policymaking because everything is so bananas all the time. So a lot of specific groups, even as like a lot of conservative intellectuals will look at this administration and be kind of like, Trump doesn't really like espouse our ideas in a super clear way, like people, people who believe in things like to see politicians who articulate what they believe, like the way like Barack Obama not only follows mainstream American liberalism, he's one of its greatest orators of all time, like the highest expression of those ideas. Trump does not have a high expression of any kind of ideas, but he he does a lot of stuff, right? Like if you own a power plant and you really want to make the pollution rules laxer, Trump probably delivers for you more than a sort of more conventional conservative politician would just because he's so he's so willing to be reckless with these kinds of things. You know, like he made a rule change so that now financial advisors are allowed to deliberately give you bad advice so that you make less money and they make more. Um, And there's been no public discussion of that at all. Like it happened years ago. It's just nothing because there's like 27 other things. And Trump will maybe say something about the financial industry that sounds a little anti-Semitic. So people will talk about that instead of of his actual policymaking. And that's, I just think, an important part of this dynamic that like it's it's in some ways like a like a supercharged version of a conventional Republican administration. I was talking to someone about this piece last week that essentially this is like if you had a Republican administration, but no one could shut the fuck up and everyone just said literally everything that they ever wanted to do like if this were just the world's shortest midsummer murders episode and the person immediately admitted to everything within eight minutes and you went right back to bucolic english village life i'm not sure i've seen midsummer murders well that's on you (laughs) continue it is true that to build a Trumpism that is a coherent governing philosophy out of the things that come out of Donald Trump's mouth is a project that is bound to fail because Donald Trump says a ton of things that are contradictory or that are simply kind of knee-jerk reactive. It is illustrative to me that it, it is now kind of 
generally known that if you ask Donald Trump, hey, is your administration going to do X thing, he's going to not rule it out or he's going to say all options are on the table because the idea that that he's thought enough about things to triage them doesn't appear to be what's actually happening in the day-to-day decision-making of his administration. So I do think that what that one of the kind of downstream consequences of that is that Trumpism was never as coherent in 2016 as it is being characterized, Jane, by the people who you're kind of pushing back against, right? Like, it's not that Donald Trump wasn't talking about suburban housewives in 2016. He wasn't saying the words suburban housewives, but, and this is something that I think is just as someone who covered the 2016 campaign, have found myself increasingly marveling that no one remembers just how much of the 2020, you know, if the Democrat wins, your cities will be taken over by violent rioters stuff was also happening in 2016 as well. So the question then, I think, is when we talk about what the Republican Party is, are we talking about what policies are espoused by a Republican administration? Or are we talking about who are the people who the Republican Party says it will help? And do those people feel helped? And like, yes, you get into a certain amount of what's the matter with Kansas style, you know, false consciousness. If someone feels that they are materially benefited by Republicans being in office, but actually they are not, then how do we weight that subjective feeling with, you know, their material well-being, yada, yada, yada. But it's not actually that surprising to me that the Donald Trump who ran in 2016 saying we're going to bring back coal country because the most important thing for large swaths of America is that overregulation has strangled coal is now doing these things with the EPA. Yes, Donald Trump also said I'm in favor of clean air and clean water, but like but if in you the look same at the way, core he says things, things that sound good. Yes, exactly. Yeah. If you look at the core political promise of the Trump campaign in 2016, it was, there are people who have been tamped down by the status quo who are going to be re-empowered under this administration. And I don't know that it's, I think that it's fair to look at what's happening in terms of like standard Republican deregulation and say, there isn't anything here that you can identify as being specifically populist coming out of the policymaking in the Trump administration if we're looking solely at economic policy, right? I don't know that that's the same as saying that the Republican Party has done has has remade Trump because I think it's just going to take some more time to figure out if like an iteration of Donald Trump who cares more about the ins and outs of government policymaking would actually be doing things with like the Social Security Administration that would favor Trump voters at the expense of non-Trump voters. Like that's that's I think the core, you know, the the populism for whom question really is the core question of Trumpism, right? The like Trump was running in 2016 on the promise of a white welfare state to be like super, super, super reductionist about it. And on the very limited proposition that a white welfare state has not materialized via executive branch policymaking, then like, yes, I will agree that the Republican Party has, you know, has successfully weathered the theoretical changes that could have been wrought as a result of Trump winning the 2016 presidential election. But I think that the bigger question of in what ways Trump is going to Trump is remaking what Republicans consider priorities is we're just we're going to have to see what happens, frankly, once Donald Trump is no longer in office and see what strands of that persist, not just in rhetoric, but in governance itself. But so I think that we see in, you know, a guy like like Josh Hawley, a guy like Tom Cotton, right? We do see what this sort of next generation Trumpism is. And it's a continuation of the same basic 
bait and switch, right? So like Hawley does this op-ed saying Joe Biden is a corporate Democrat and the big winners in his administration will be Wall Street and Silicon Valley. So, okay, fine, right? But like Josh Hawley is a supporter of Trump's corporate tax cut whose biggest beneficiaries were Wall Street and Silicon Valley. He has never raised an objection to any Trump administration appointee to any executive branch regulatory agency. He does not have any legislation that he is sponsoring that would damage the core financial interests of Wall Street in any way. On technology, it's different, right? He has a clear beef with quote-unquote Silicon Valley, but it's not a beef with Palantir. It's not a beef with uh, Apple. It's not a beef with Google in its guise as a provider of enterprise business services. It's not a beef with Amazon's internet server business or its role as an employer of arguably exploited warehouse labor. It's just an extension of the decades-long conservative critique of Hollywood and the liberal media, so to speak, right? So like Hawley, like most conservatives, wants conservative content to perform better in Google search rankings and Facebook shares and and Twitter, which is fine. But I mean, that's the opposite of a new conservative view. And it's, it's always been the same thing, right? So it's like, George H.W. Bush would rail against Hollywood and Hollywood liberals, uh, but also put forward policies that were like in the concrete material interests of movie stars and, and Hollywood executives. And it's fine to have like a little bit of dissonance around those topics, but it was never an economic critique of the Hollywood elite. It was a cultural critique of a group of people who happened to be rich. And they've extended that. And you see it even even more clearly in the case of technology, because the technology industry is so much more um, diffuse than like Hollywood or the media was. Like there's a lot more happening in Silicon Valley than like Facebook deciding what will overperform in their sharing algorithms. And it's fine that just like hardline economic libertarians who think the greatest injustice in the world is for rich people to pay taxes, just like love Silicon Valley executives. And all they want to do is make Silicon Valley executives richer. Uh, But there's this pretense that like something else is going on or that something else might go on. And there might be a politics of the concrete material interests of heartland Americans. Right. And yet at the same time, there just isn't. Right. And there's no there's no kind of debate about it. And then you have um, Orrin Cass, like off in a little corner, uh, like writing up PDFs that's like, maybe we should actually change American policies. And, you know, I think some of his ideas don't really like add up, but they like are ideas. And strikingly, like nobody in Republican Party politics is actually interested in that stuff. So what they have learned from Trump, it seems to me, is a set of ideas about kind of how to update their update their rhetoric, right? They've they've learned from a popular television host some things that it's good to say on television. And they've also improved because he's a bit of a you know, he's a he's a loose poker player, right? And they they refine the Trumpian pitch by being a little more cautious, a little more careful, a little more restrained in what they say, while learning from Trump some themes that that sell well, uh, particularly with non-religious people, right? Because the traditional Republican base was specifically religiously observant white people. And the big thing that Trump has taught them is how to speak to secular non-college whites in the North, right? Which is like uh, Trump went to college. But I mean, it's it's closer to Trump's personal life story than to the Bush families, right? There's no uh, redemptive moment. There's no finding of Jesus in the Trump personal narrative. It's just being this kind of gauche guy who doesn't like foreigners. Um, and that's, you know, that's won them something. I mean, John Kerry used to be the guy who he had this throwaway line in 2004 about we shouldn't be opening firehouses in Baghdad and closing them in Boston. Right. And like Kerry lost the election, but he overperformed in Wisconsin, in Ohio, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania and in all those states that that flipped to Trump because there's a, you know, like a strong xenophobic constituency there that Democrats used to appeal to and that Republicans kind of lost with this like churchy Southern stuff. And now and now Trump brings them in and and they're all kind of playing to that. But on the policy level, Trump has empowered immigration hardliners like that. 
that's a big deal, but it, it seems to me like almost all there is to it. Right. And I think that that is something that rhetoric, I really think so much of the reason why I brought up my thoughts on like whether or not Trumpism existed, because I think that there is something that people believed was a Trumpist ideal, but it was stuff that they projected onto him. And so when he said healthcare for everyone, they ignored the whole part about like Obamacare will be gone, which we'll, we'll get into talking about the conventions, but it is interesting after 10 years of every folk, everyone in the GOP focusing on getting rid of the Affordable Care Act uh, that was only mentioned vaguely once during the Republican National Convention. But I do think that it is that rhetorical lesson that if you say these things, if you talk about simultaneously bombing the shit out of everyone and the Iraq war was a bad idea, somehow people take the Marines doubt of the world, take that to mean that you're a dove. And I think that that rhetorical lesson is that Republican politics recognized that with Trump, they didn't actually have to change anything at all. They didn't have to change their interpretation of coal regulations or their interpretation of economics, even Josh Hawley's quixotic fight against social media companies is so, to me, untethered from the entire populist ideal for which he purports to stand. Because, you know, the the forgotten middle Americans' number one co- concern is not, I'm, I demand that I get more Ben Shapiro content on Facebook. And so I think that there there is a sense that th- this was just a rhetorical lesson that the populism that people created entire magazines to argue for was nothing that Trump actually thought. It's just that Trump says things and people later were like showing up like Billy Flynn out of Chicago to be like, what he meant was that he stands for the forgotten man and you just can't let Roxy Hart do the press conference by yourself. And so yeah, I think that, that it's just been a, a rhetorical lesson for Republicans rather than any effort to make them actually change anything at all. There's one thing that I want to point out, which is that there are things that other Republicans don't talk about that Donald Trump does sometimes when he's feeling particularly unguarded talk about that are showing up in policy that like aren't, you know, that, that you wouldn't see in a standard Republican platform. And frankly, that like, play into the concerns of some of the more fevered Trump critics that he is like turning government into a weapon for his own personal gain or the gain of, you know, people he likes. The coronavirus response is, I think, illustrative here, right? Like we do have some evidence that it's not just that the government's coronavirus response was slow and ineffective because they didn't want to be giving out aid to people that the government's coronavirus response was not maximally effective because there was more reticence to giving aid to the state governments of blue states where coronavirus was hitting hardest in the first wave than there was to, you know, to to like providing ventilators to governors of red states. That is not something that you traditionally see in Republican governance. It's more of an ideological objection to like the concept of, you know, relief in general, the Trumpist idea that government is a mechanism by which you distribute favors to your allies and supporters is creeping into that element. I think that that's kind of the best argument that I can muster in terms of the idea that this what we're seeing now isn't just a replacement level Republican administration uh, or even the kind of liberal caricature of conservatives that like they deliberately run government badly because they want to see government shrink. What we're seeing is to some extent an operationalization of the idea that it is a function of government to reward the people who put that government into office. Should we take a break here? Yep. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. 
They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so I mean, I guess after the conventions... You know, uh, this is a good moment to look at sort of the, the the state of the the GOP, which was definitely, you know, packaged in its Trumpy form. Um, I, I would say there. I mean, not just because Trump is is running for reelection, but because one thing you can do. Well, what Democrats did with their convention, I would say, is they tried to show a bunch of politicians who superficially are not the same as Joe Biden. Right. John Kasich is a Republican. Bernie Sanders is a Democratic Socialist. Pete Buttigieg is a young gay man. Cory Booker is African-American. Kamala Harris is half black, half Indian, child of immigrants, woman. Right. And the point was, like, all these different kinds of people think Joe Biden should be president. But also, like, these people are uh, politicians. Right. Like, real Democratic Party politicians, then that was interspersed with like, quote unquote, normal people, right? Like real life stories of of Americans from different walks of life who were supposed to be helped by Biden. The Trump thing was different because, you know, somebody like the head of the New York City Police Union or Nick Sandman or like the St. Louis gun couple, those are neither like politicians with constituencies who are telling you in like a coalitional framework, you should vote for Donald Trump. And they're also not like man on the streets, right? They're they're conservative media celebrities or there was like that old college football coach, right? Lou Holtz. Yeah, I, I feel as if that was a personal attack on me. The <laughs> one person on this podcast who's watched multiple episodes of College Football Final, where he has argued many times that Notre Dame should make the make the playoff after going nine and three. But I digress. There you go. No, but so it was it was weird, right? I mean, I, I guess the the smart thing to tweet as a political journalist is like, this may look bizarre to you, person who's well-informed about politics and lives in a city and pays attention to what's going on in America. But this is really resonating with a lot of people. Uh, But I really have to say, like, it was weird. Like, there was like a lot of, like, who is this person? It came out after the fact that a number of the people in some of the videos, like, didn't realize they were being dragooned into Trump endorsement videos. Like, it was, to me, like, a really odd display, whereas the Democratic convention, you know, I, I I wouldn't I I felt better about it after watching the Republicans just because it was so like literal paint by numbers like here's what we're trying to tell you here um, even though I didn't think any of the speeches were like so amazing or, or or anything like that I guess to me it's like the state of the Democratic Party is actually really boring after a lot of ideological ferment which is that it's a reasonably big tent that is coalesced around the idea that electing Joe Biden to implement a watered-down version of the ideas left-wing people are excited about is like a pretty good idea that you should feel comfortable voting for. But it is also a lot about the symbolism of diversity, more than an incredibly substantive, like, here's our our anti-racism agenda. It's a lot of like, Benetton ad kind of stuff that I don't know, like I it, it it gives me some doubts after 2016 that even that it resonates with the people who it's meant to be appealing to. It, it seems a little weird to me, almost like something that 
makes the people who work in Democratic Party politics feel better about themselves more than like really changes anything. Well, I did think it was also interesting because if you watch the Republican National Convention, you would come to the conclusion that the Republican Party is about 40 percent African-American. Yeah. And the the Republican uh, convention also featured this weird dichotomy between Joe Biden is basically the president of Antifa. Also, Joe Biden wrote the worst crime bill in the history of collective time and locked up millions of black men because he was too tough on crime. And it really reminds me of the simultaneous uh, Kamala's a cop t-shirts, which also seem to imply that being a cop was bad, which seems like a weird argument that for conservatives to be making, but I digress. It's worth getting down to brass tacks that most people don't watch either convention because most people at 8.30 p.m. on a Tuesday are not like, you know what I want to do? I want to see what Matt Gates has to say about things. Um, But I think that the people who did watch so much of these conventions is about how what they put on television or put out and then how it is then interpreted outwards. And so speeches that are just speeches become like, oh, this is a soaring story or this is, you know, this is very important. This is the real moment of the convention. I saw a a host of kind of center right writers arguing that Melania Trump's speech was really the heart of the convention. What if you ask me right now, what did Melania Trump say? I have no idea. And the same goes for the Democratic National Convention in which like the speeches don't like we do this thing, but it is more about the appearance of doing the thing than that the thing matters, especially when you have a convention where the Democratic National Committee actually did meet via Zoom to come up with a 110-page platform to talk about the very specifics of issues. And obviously, the Republican National Committee did not do the same thing. But when you're not having these like real, really big dr- knockdown, drag-out decisions about, con- about platforms, if you'll remember 2016... Uh, that Republican National Convention included Ted Cruz getting screamed at for repeatedly saying, vote your conscience, if you, which was entertaining in a very strange way that day. But I think that the conventions themselves don't really tell you very much, but they do tell you the story that these parties want to be told about themselves. But also, I did think it was interesting, the stories that the Democratic National Convention wanted to tell is that everyone agrees that Joe Biden is very reasonable and good, that Bernie Sanders agrees, that all these former Republicans agrees, all these current Republicans agree, that all these foreign policy experts agree, that everyone thinks that Joe Biden is reasonable and nice and he should be president of the United States. And the Republican National Committee was like, all of these people you remember as side characters from having watched a lot of Fox News think that Trump is great and that he is going to stand up about these issues that you care about because you watch a lot of Fox News. Like the polling um, in our Slack channel on the, on the conventions, we just kept dropping and polling of like how many people actually care about cancel culture and Politico's polling, which found that like the people who know what it is care about it, but most people don't know what it is. And also the definition of cancel culture gets wiggly enough for certain people that it becomes kind of a challenging political issue, especially when you have Trump screaming about how people should protest Goodyear tires. But I think that it very much was the both of these conventions were about the stories that each party is trying to tell about themselves and alternative trying to tell about their opposition that Joe Biden will hearken in. I don't know, the fall of Middle Earth and the reign of Mordor. And that, and also that so much of this, and I think that this gets to something that we've been talking about and a lot of people have been talking about, which is that in reaction to police shootings and protests and then violence that has taken place currently under the administration of Donald Trump, that that is a forebearer of what life would look like under the administration of Joe Biden, which to me is an entirely separate concern because the idea here is that if you reelect Donald Trump, then potato, something would happen. I don't know. The idea, the idea is that Trump and Republicans are containing 
the cancerous disorder that festers at the heart of left-wing American cities, such as New York, Chicago, Portland, Jacksonville, Seattle, and Miami, which and was that, also encouraged. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Look, I, 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 right, I'm not I endorsing I this it. view. I just like I, I, I do think it's important to like articulate what it is, right? The idea. I mean, and it's very thin blue line type stuff, right? I mean, the the claim about the police manning the thin blue line was never that there's zero crime. It's that things could get so much worse, right? And any instance of something bad happening is not supposed to make you go read Ghetto Side and like think about how with improved community relations and more sophisticated approaches, like we could do better at controlling crime. It's supposed to make you think, wow, it's a dangerous world out there. And I'm glad because, you know, the, the dynamics of crime, right, or that the, the victims of crime are very disproportionately low income, very disproportionately African-American, but the people who are supposed to be politically activated by fear of crime are middle-class people um, who are not particularly likely to be victimized, but it's supposed to be a dramatic example, right? You, you look at the violence that's happening over there, and the promise of law and order politics is to keep it away from you. And then you see, right? I mean, Dare I know likes to talk about polls showing that people always think crime is rising, right? Yeah, it but is. You, Right, right. But but you do see in, in their political behavior, right, that when crime in fact fell, the amount of political activation around crime, like, also went down. Right. Whereas when it goes up, it's just it's a it's a media dynamic. Right. It's like when, you know, obviously, like. Uh, looting in Kenosha, Wisconsin has nothing in particular to do with my life, but it's like an interesting story. And I think like sad for the people who live there, but more to the point, like when it's on the news all the time, it's something that people think about. And then Trump's pitch is that like, you are safe in, I, I mean, it's confusing because he is in fact the incumbent, but he's trying to say like Democrats are letting their cities burn down. And if they govern the whole country, they're going to let it happen to your neighborhood too. And that's why he links it with, you know, his NIMBY stuff about housing. Cory Booker's going to run it. I think is what he said with Laura Ingraham, which is a not super subtle. Especially uh, to be saying about dog whistle. To be saying about former Stanford football player, also Cory Booker. Like in and in, in the scale well, what of like Cory Booker is no of, one's threatening black man. Yes. I'm like Cory Booker's housing legislation that Joe Biden has endorsed is a very admirable effort to to improve things. Anyway, there's there's a logic to all this stuff. And I don't think it's a um admirable logic or something that I would endorse. But I mean, I also don't think it's it's a good idea to act like it it makes no sense. I mean, the the reason Biden went and gave his speech where he's like, uh, no, actually, I think looting is bad. And also, I think Trump is a bad president. It's just to like, re-clarify that like, it's not factually true that like, Joe Biden thinks it would be good for your neighborhood to be burned down by rioters, um, which, you know, it's banal, but is like, it, this is exactly what Trump is trying to obscure, right? I mean, just like with, with the caravan and a million other things, because Democrats say things like health insurance availability are like their top priorities, whereas Trump says, like, getting tough on crime is his top priority. He wants you to draw the inference that like Democrats actively want urban crime to rise. And it's not true, but it becomes a difficult political thread because it, what is true is that like Democrats don't think the national political conversation should be dominated by um, would be asylum seekers from Central America or urban disorder in Kenosha, Wisconsin. They have their own theory of what the big national problems are. They would like to govern the country by raising the minimum wage, doing whatever on clean energy, like their whole Democratic Party shtick. So I do want to go back to the kind of the the totality of convention programming, because the fact of the matter is that, like, as both of you have been saying, 
conventions say more about how the party, who the party feels needs to be pleased and represented than they necessarily do. Like the thing that you learn about a party from its convention that you don't see from what ads they're running in swing states in the weeks between the convention and the election, or that you don't see from how candidates present themselves in the debates is who gets to have a voice in this party. And like, I don't think we learned a lot about the Republican Party from the Republican convention that we didn't already already know, right? The Republican Party is all in on the enthusiasm for Donald Trump is astounding. It is going to continue to carry us to victory. We see no reason to be anything other than the party of Donald Trump. And yes, that embodies certain contradictions regarding is Donald Trump the savior of criminal justice reform or is Donald Trump the person who's going to get tough on crime? But those are contradictions within Trump itself, uh, Trump himself and the Trump administration, not contradictions within like a Republican Party grappling with Trump. The Democratic example is, I think, more interesting because there's definitely a question of if you run a popular front campaign and you win, are you governing as a coalition or are you governing as we are one party in a two-party system and we've defeated the other party? Does Joe Biden and the Biden Brain Trust think that a putative Biden administration will need to have substantial representation and buy-in from the Johns Kasich of the world that they are going to be, if they win, you know, governing as both Democrats and anti-Trump Republicans? Or is the feeling in the Democratic Party that the Republican Party has lashed its boat to Trump and to the extent to which, you know, dissident Republicans are now abandoning the party for Biden, that's great for them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be given a voice in democratic policymaking going forward. The convention gave us a pretty clear idea that the Democratic Party is giving a platform to, you know, and and is, is, is legitimating the concerns of and and representing the needs of dissident Republicans more than it is certain progressive constituencies. Uh, you know, the the fact that Julian Castro did not have a speaking slot at the convention uh, is, you know, to a certain is is something that I think we're going to hear a lot about if there starts being concerned about Latino enthusiasm. Uh, but it's also an illustrative. But were Latinos enthusiastic about Julian Castro? I mean, no. But if you see it, but I mean, <laughs> well, okay, no, sorry. It's something that's that I think is that the extent to which Democrats see yes. saw did not yes. see a need to put Latino speakers writ large in front in primetime television is something that's going to come up if there are concerns about Latino enthusiasm going forward. But you know, I think that those are conversations that should that should be happening explicitly within the party right now. Uh, transition planning is already happening, as with any presidential campaign that wasn't the 2016 Trump campaign, right? It's not that like they're measuring the drapes. It's that because you have to hit the ground running on January 21st with an entire executive branch, you have to do some planning even before the election for what happens if we win. And to the extent that the convention offered a window into how that conversation is going in the Democratic Party, it certainly did appear to be the case that while on a substantive matter, they are, you know, moving the platform to the left of where it was in like 2008 and 2012. As a governing matter, there may very well be a larger role for the center right than some progressives would want within the party. It's challenging because I think that the interior conversations happening among Democrats are ch- are tough to get at in some ways because there is, it seems to be an alternating emphasis among Democrats on either we are going to win or, oh, dear, sweet God, we're going to lose so badly. It's time to panic. We absolutely must panic. And so I think that that teeter-totter between mild confidence and abject panic is starting to reflect what we hear from among Democrats, especially about polling among minority groups. Like there's been some, um, I saw it on Hot Air or something, there's some polling about like, Oh, like Trump's approval rating among black voters has gone up 60 percent. 
which is hard to do because the numbers they're reflecting are post-convention from one poll done immediately after the convention where Trump's approval rating among a small group of black voter. Well, it actually wasn't clear whether or not they were just black Americans or black registered voters um, where his approval went from like 15 percent to 24 percent but at the same time we don't know what that that we don't know if that would be able to be replicated or which black voters because as we've seen there's a massive gender gap among black voters and women black women who are the most reliable voting block in america still have extremely low approval ratings for donald trump and everyone involved with him but again like we're going to start seeing a lot of those kinds of stories especially as we we're going to have more conversations about polling and how that works, especially as each polls to either reflects like it's time to panic or it's time to relax because apparently we're addicted to that, that teeter totter of panic. But I think that we're going to start hearing more about those conversations that are happening within the party. And I think though, that what we hear about the internal machinations of the democratic or Republican party is what the people telling us want to hear, want us to hear about them. So either there's the, the whistleblower quote unquote, who's like, Democrats aren't paying enough attention to this and we got to do something. Or we're hearing like, actually everything's totally awesome and everything's going super great, which is why you, you get the um, embargoed emails that are like, incredibly good news for a candidate but you can't tell anyone because they know that you're gonna tell everyone and so it's it's worth reading through the like looking through the lines on a lot of what we hear over the next coming weeks yeah no it is definitely true that uh going from a trump administration where you assume that any internal dissent is going to get leaked like immediately uh to a biden operation where the people who are not supposed to talk to press are not for the most part talking to the press is an a, a thing that uh, both we as journalists and the public is going to have to adjust to in the next several weeks. I've been seeing this across, uh, you know, all, all media, uh, Vox podcasts, tweets, articles, newsletters. I don't think Democrats should, quote unquote, panic about Trump's approval with African-Americans and Latinos and his vote share with African-Americans and Latinos going up slightly uh, because I don't know, like he's still losing the election. Uh, but the fact is, is that like Trump's overall numbers are down from where they are in 2016, right? For all kinds of obvious reasons, the pandemic, the double digit unemployment, his demonstrated inability to grow in office, what we talked about before, the failure of his populist promise, et cetera, et cetera. So he is doing what liberals typically characterize as just kind of doubling down on racism as his reelection strategy. And Democrats are doing what they characterize as like doubling down on racial justice, right? Particularly in the aftermath of, of George Floyd. And, and, and the, so what, what Democrats think is happening is that they are making a big push for racial justice. And Donald Trump is making a big push of racist dog whistling. But what's happening in the electorate is that Democrats are gaining white voters and losing non-white voters. And they don't need to panic about that at all. Like white voters outnumber non-white voters. It's a totally fine trade to make as a political party. But when the observed changes in the electorate are the opposite of what your theory of politics says should be happening, I think that ought to provoke a little bit more analysis. And, and I don't quite want to say soul searching because it's not obvious that anyone has been wronged here, uh, but some kind of thoughtfulness about like what is actually going on like who is this message actually speaking to who are the people who are rallying behind this who are we pleasing and why because it's really like it's quite striking right like if you hadn't watched any polls and you had just listened to liberal political commentary over the past four years like you would have no idea that the transformation in the electorate has been a shift of white voters to the Democrats and a shift of black and, and Latin voters to Trump. And, you know, it's something about gender. It's something about educational attainment. Like, you know, we can we can tease out sort of what's in in the mix there. But I think to just kind of like blunder past it you know, is a mistake analytically. It seems like there is a lot more we could be getting into here, but I would just kind of posit that if all you'd been doing was listening to liberal political commentary, you couldn't have very well predicted <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what you'd be hearing out of their Democratic convention 
two weeks ago either. So I'm not, you know, I think I think there's an extent to which the uh, the conflation of the liberal commentariat with the Democratic Party is probably confusing more than it needs to here because the Democratic Party has very successfully positioned itself as the party of the white, well-educated suburbanites who are kind of scandalized by Trump. Right. The the, the kind of the reasonable middle or an attempt at the reasonable middle, which is funny because uh, there is a host of it's really interesting to see how messaging works because messaging doesn't need to make sense. Messaging does not need to add, you know, you don't need it. The math of messaging doesn't need to make need to work. And so you saw during the Democratic National Convention, a host of conservative sites making hay about the fact that um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez appeared to endorse Bernie Sanders uh, during the convention because that because of a procedural thing during roll call that then she herself explained on Twitter and Instagram. But then, you know, oh, like they're silencing the liberals, like they're silencing the left during the Democratic National Convention. And then about like eh, 48 hours later, the Democratic National Convention was like a parade to Antifa, which I was like, but again, it doesn't have to make any sense. You just have to say it. And that's all that matters, apparently. Um, should we move on to our white paper? Yeah, let's talk about talk yeah. about some Italian. Yes, because it's a really pirates. good white paper. Pirates. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge—that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Our... Paper today is a little bit of a fun one. It is called Pirate Attacks and the Shape of the Italian Urban System by Antonio Azzaturo, Mich- Michele Cascarano, and Guido de Blasio. Uh, it's a, a bunch of uh, Italian researchers, and they are looking at coastal pirate attacks in Italy, which apparently were common from the 16th to early 19th centuries, and the pattern of where they happened. And apparently they can document that it was exposure to pirate attacks is why so many towns in the Italian coastline are sort of located on top of hills. Like if you've ever been to Italy, it's actually quite striking. It's it's part of what's so beautiful about it. But then you stop and think about it and, and you ask yourself like, well, how come most places you don't see towns kind of peaked on the top of hills? And the answer is it's actually a, a bad place to build a large city because you're restricted to this little hilltop and it's hard to get water up there. Um, but so, you know, their argument is that because people were essentially trying to run away from pirates, they scattered to these little hilltop towns, and it prevented the growth of uh, substantial cities, and that this has, you know, because like cities today are mostly just where cities were 150 years ago, sort of enduring economic consequences that it's um, it's optimized for uh, anti-pirate security and to an extent scenicness for American tourists rather than for actual commerce and economic life. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, any kind of research project involving pirates is fun. I, I really appreciate, Matt, that, that uh, you managed to find a paper about pirates yes. that is also about... <laughs> population economics, and in particular, the notion that there is some land that could naturally support more people than for various historical accidental reasons it has actually been able to support. Yes, here in America, where we are not afflicted by pirates, (laughs) we could build large cities on the vast interior plains. Um, Just saying. Right. 
It's funny how this relates back to your book, but I think that the paper gets at the, you basically, they quote the consequences of historical shocks on city development. And they mentioned that in the Appalachian region of the United States, there are portage paths that stimulate the concentration of people, even when those portage paths no longer help anywhere, they're, they're relatively overpopulated. And so there are, you know, if you have a, a large city that is where it is because of the colonial infrastructures of the French and British colonization of sub-Saharan Africa, they're still there despite the lack of, thank God, the lack of British and French involvement in sub-Saharan Africa. Knock on everything. Um, but it's interesting how they also mention a separate paper that shows that the relocation of German refugees after the Second World War determined a permanent increase in the inhabitants of those areas, even after there was a, the end of a ban on relocation. And so this paper gets at that a lot of times, you know, the cities on hills aren't there necessarily because it makes sense now. It's because it made sense then. But I particularly, I mean, there are so many reasons that that I just adore this paper. Uh, and I think it is really worth noting that even though none of these are American-affiliated professors or people affiliated with any Anglophone institution, it's still very, very well and clearly written and laid out. Uh, and so actually, a white paper that we can totally endorse uh, people reading if they are interested in piracy. But also, it's an interesting a way that abstracts from the kind of political baggage of the nature versus nurture debate, some questions about whether you can attribute historical lack of economic development to something innate in the character of a culture or a people. Uh, because there's, you know, the split between northern and southern Italy in particular uh, is something that's been variously attributed to like, oh, Southern Italians are just lazy. And that's why most of the industrial development uh, in Italy happened in the North and why the North was, you know, through so much of the 20th century had a higher standard of living than than the Southern regions did. And there have been other, you know, points that have been made that Southern Italy was geographically disadvantaged for various reasons. The prevalence of malaria certainly comes up here. But it's this is another data point that what was happening in southern Italy wasn't people trying to be subsistence farmers for hundreds of years, but people forced into subsistence farming because the alternative was getting pirated. So without kind of while looking at, you know, Europeans who are generally at this point in time assumed to be white and, you know, therefore the there, there isn't really a live discourse of are Italians less genetically inclined to intelligence than Northern Europeans are, that kind of thing. It gets at some of the arguments that you generally see with regard to interracial comparisons, like to what extent can the lack of economic development of a community be attributed to things that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago? Yeah. And also, I mean, uh, one thing that's interesting about it in these terms, though, that I, that I think people would benefit from when they talk about, you know, historical legacies in the American context is that the solutions are not directly tied to what the legacy is, right? Like, you don't read this paper and say, okay, well, what Italy needs to do is make a big investment in anti-piracy, right? Because like, that's like not the issue. Like if you could have gone back in time and done that in the 17th century, like, yes, great, right? Um, it's not actually 100% obvious to me what the policy upshot of this paper is. You would have to think about it. But the point is that like a historical legacy can have a powerful present day impact rather than like, as, as Dara was saying, like, you don't need to like posit some weird deficiency on the part of Southern Italians. Like, there's just a, a reason. Um, and then you would need a solution. Right. And you have to it's almost like a, you know, like a like a clean room problem where it's like, OK, like what what do we do about this? Right. Um, if we have some confidence that it's not like something is wrong with the people, that they're just like not up to their potential. These things aren't arranged in the best possible way. So it's like, well, what are we going to do? Right. And what we're not going to do is like stew on the nature of the piracy problem and like talk about how bad we feel about piracy. Um, anyway, I won't like belabor the analogy to the United States, uh, but I, I, I do think like the point holds and it speaks to some of my concerns about 
the state of the Democratic Party, though, which, you know, seems to me to have a little bit more uh, like feelings and a little bit less like here's our here's our plan. Here's how we're going to help than than you might want here, like like a rescue plan for southern Italy. It's got to have something to do with like infrastructure and like urban investment or something about where you're locating things like it's like just talking about pirates is uh it's because pirates are funny like it's a good paper but like you're not going to get anywhere with like long disquisitions on piracy to the extent that there is a policy implication for this paper it's again you know what we were joking about earlier with it being the piracy paper that plays into one billion americans because what you know for for one thing the authors themselves note at the end of the paper that it should cast some skepticism on policies that are designed to allow people to stay in less economically productive regions because those may not those may themselves have been the product of like other choices not necessarily because there's any you know innate desire of southern Italians to live at the tops of hills, but also that it kind of has, it it has self-corrected to a certain extent after the reunification of Italy or the unification of Italy and the, you know, kind of shift toward a more urban industrial society in the 20th century, that once you could more freely move into northern Italy from the south because it was all part of the same polity, and once there was a strong economic pull factor into the main urban centers, that you know, those those areas became again slightly depopulated. That's how you have, you know, fun New York Times travel section stories about like the ghost towns of central Italy. Um, but that meant that those people could were then kind of allowed to find the best, the most economically ideal place for them to be. So, you know, it's a it's a paper about freedom of movement that only pretends to be a paper about pirates. Arr. We need to do more pirate content. I think that's where where I've come here. Yeah, no, everybody sent everybody sent us pirate white papers. Yeah, I mean, pirate research is definitely a sort of an under underrated um, area of of economic analysis. Uh, always fun, always a great way to get on the weeds. People ask me sometimes, like, how how can I get your my my research talked about in your show? And the answer is more pirates. Um, that's how we go. Okay, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks to our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. Uh, and the weeds will be back on Friday. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise. The future of work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.